chapter 4, 1 Timothy, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We didn't go through the whole book last week. 1 Timothy chapter 4, I've just been doing some reading in 2 Timothy, but we're preaching through 1 Timothy uh, right now. I'm seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And Candace Duggles, um, when she saw me post a sermon title online for the previous time where it was part one, this is part two, but she mentioned, you know, maybe for online, you should adjust the title because it almost looks like we're a church promoting seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And so she mentioned, maybe we could have, but beware of seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. When I went back and looked at the graphic and what said, and it sure did. Well, she said, "Well, like we're going to be trying to do a witchcraft in church um, or something like that." But yeah, it was a beware of seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, and really anything contrary to scripture can be the entry point of seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Um, we might have expected. Uh, the Apostle Paul, as he writes this morning to Timothy um, about doctrines of devils, that maybe he would talk about the denial of the deity of Christ, um, the rejection of the Trinity, um, or any other um, important doctrines, the rejection of the gospel um, itself. But he reveals the subtlety of Satan to gain a foothold. And um, Paul gives an example of what was being taught at Ephesus. We'll go ahead and begin in 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Two weeks ago, we preached on that aspect of it, that there would be these doctrines of devils, and how oftentimes it comes through an angel of light, um, that through all, many of the false religions that were started in the last two centuries was by a spirit showing up to someone, and as we're all warned, that though we or an angel from heaven teach some other doctrine to believe it not. That there's um, deceivers, there's those that would pretend to write in the name of Paul and the other apostles, and there would be fallen angel spirits that would appear um, before man as an angel of light, and that the angel of light, Satan himself, would also be transforming ministers of righteousness, um, or his ministers to appear like their ministers of righteousness, but they were deceivers. And so now this next part, we'll see some of the content of these seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. What are some of these doctrines? One we see forbidding to marry. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. 
for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, talking to Timothy here, um, um, and any other preachers after, like specifically talking to Timothy here, he goes, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith, and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained, but refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise of profit of little. Amen to that. Amen. Um, but um, there is a spiritual truth there that so many people could be focused on the body, um, and you know, in many cases, there's there's like different aspects. Um, of America, that you have one aspect of America idolizes the body, and uh, and like lifts it up, and it's the in and all, um, and you have the other side that is completely careless. Uh, it does say it does profit a little, okay? There is profit to exercise, and I tell you, you know, when I go on our long hikes, there's some profit to that physically. I remember last summer I lost about 15, 17 pounds, um, and when I stopped, Gained weight back, so there was some profit, but and, and, and even spiritually, there's a little bit of profit. Is when you're physically taking care of what our body wishes to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, you're able to think, think clearer, um, have more clarity of mind, and, and so there's definitely some profit in it. But he says, you know, he's talking here though. There's those that maybe they glorify, and the Greeks definitely do, and in the Olympics they they glorify um, the body. And so here he's saying, the profit of little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. And so Paul tells him, these are things you need to command, these are things that you need to teach, you need to preach. And so, um, again, well, you know, we would think when he, um, Paul is warning about these doctrines of devils, we think about maybe it, um, the atonement of Christ would be something the devil would attack. And maybe say that that's not right, and say that Jesus didn't die for us, or that it didn't, it didn't have any impact. We would think of those kinds of things being the things the devil would attack. But there's these undertones, these little things that, or they appear to be little, but they end up being huge, and um, we'll see why. But these deceivers were first focused on two seemingly minor teachings. That spirituality demanded avoiding marriage and abstaining from foods. That, that one could get closer to God or to their own inner self if they abstain from getting married and if they abstain from eating certain types of foods. This is typical of satanic deception. Both of those teachings may have some aspect or some element of truth. And such a state may aid sometimes in spiritual service. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 and 35, talks, Paul talks about the gift, if, if they receive it, that, that Paul says, If anyone can abide his eye, 
that if, his father, if someone can be single in this present distress, so it was for a specific period, specific time that he was referring to specifically, that if one could abstain from being married, it could be a good thing. Because there was a persecution going on, you know, you got young people getting married, and then they're losing their spouse the next week through persecution of Nero. And so he was saying, for this present distress, it might be a good idea to be single. But he says, but every man have his proper gift of God, if they cannot contain themselves, if, if that marriage is a gift from God, you know, in Genesis, the Bible talks about how um, two shall be one flesh. That after God said that everything was created was very good, he said, hey, you know, there's one thing not good, that man should be alone. That for most people, it would be God's gift for them to get married, and there would be a small select group that God would give with the ability to be single. And so it wasn't that being single to tell you that was wrong, but it was the forbidding to marry. To say that you cannot um, get married. And, and But there were people, religious groups that taught that you would be more spiritual, you'd get closer to the God or gods if you stayed single and abstained from any type of sexual intercourse. And then you had those that taught that you need meat was wrong, or particular kinds of meat. And again, you know what, fasting is not wrong. We see Jesus when fasted 40 days, 40 nights. We see the disciples at different times fasted and prayed, but those were for a particular um, time span. It wasn't to go on forever. You know, if you quit eating altogether, you would die, okay? But, uh, you know, there may be times where um, fasting can be a help. Where we say, hey, we're not going to eat food all day. We're going to dedicate our breakfast, our lunch, our dinner time to concentrated times in prayer. And then it teaches your body uh, to have self-denial. That as you learn, as you fast, you're teaching that self-denial, which when you're training your body in that way, you can train yourself not to fall into different temptations. You're teaching yourself to have discipline. And so fasting is not wrong, but it is encouraged um, in different times and, and can be helpful for the Christian. It's important to fast with prayer on occasion. You read in Matthew 6, verse 16 and 17, Matthew 9, 14 and 15. But the deception comes in seeing those things as essential elements for salvation or required by the law of God to abstain long-term from different things. The teaching that self-denial on a physical level was essential for true spirituality by the Essenes. They were a Jewish um, sect that appeared in Israel as early as the second century BC. They formed the Comran community, um, which was near the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and where or near the sea where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And they practiced this where many of them would not get married and that they would abstain uh, uh, um, from, from meats or had other special dietary regulations. It's possible that their influence made their way to Ephesus. 
Um, it was predominantly Greek, but some of the Jewish influence could have been there. But another possible influence at Ephesus was the dualism of the Greek Gnostics. They viewed that matter was evil and that spirit was good. That marriage, specifically sex and food, as well being aspects of an evil material world, should be shunned. That some things would be a necessary evil, that sometimes you'd have to eat some food, but that they still considered an evil because it pertained to the flesh. They, they, they believe in a secret hidden knowledge and that they were chosen to be the enlightened ones. Um, they rejected the body as part of the evil physical world, and Gnosticism was supposed a serious threat to Orthodox faith for several centuries after this time period, and that they rejected that Jesus actually died on the cross. They denied that he actually even came in the flesh, but that Jesus came simply in spirit form, and then that it appeared as if he died. And so they're really rejecting, rejecting the atonement of Christ and him dying for it, because they say the flesh was evil. Today, um, you have Roman Catholic priests, uh, monks, nuns, Buddhist monks, nuns. Um, they're required to abstain from marriage. And remember, this is something that God calls a doctrine of devils, forbidding to marry. But yet the, the Catholics, um, when they, if you want to be the priest, um, you want to um, become um, a bishop, you want to become a pope, that you are obligated to make a vow of celibacy that you're not to get married at all. Now that didn't stop them from any kinds of immorality. Martin Luther writes much of the immorality of the, um, of the Roman Catholics and that um, they would often go into these caves and um, they'd be sleeping around with the nuns, and then they would be having abortions, all while in the front and center, appearing like you were a spiritual, godly um, people. And by forbidding this um, marriage, that may have, that may be in part, part of the many scandals that have plagued the Roman Catholic Church with sexual scandals, is they're making this vow of celibacy but behind closed doors, are not keeping it. We see that God, um, we see God had Tim, Paul write Timothy in chapter 3, that a bishop must be the husband of one wife. Okay, not to have two wives, not to have three wives, but we see it's very much so permitted to be married and more desirable to be married. doesn't mean that if a pastor's wife dies that he has to resign. Um, or anything like that, but that we see that a bishop, a pastor, would be that they would have, they suspected that they would be married. Now the Catholic Church does have this unique thing that if they were part of the um, Church of England and they were married at that time, that if they convert and become Catholic, that then those priests could still remain married. And so if someone wants to be a Catholic priest, I guess best to be Anglican first, and then go be a Catholic priest. But it's just kind of weird how they make that exception. There is a call, a petition within the Catholic Church to um, remove this um, bondage upon him. Um, and so I know the Pope was looking at that. I don't know what the final decision um, has been yet. 
but there's that pressure to not get married. And the Bible calls this a doctrine of devils. Uh, I'm, I'm commanded to abstain from meat. You know, you look at vegetarianism, and I'm not talking about those who may choose to follow a vegetarian-style diet for themselves, or those that may have health issues that may require or highly suggest, suggested it by a doctor or their research to have a vegetarian diet. Um, the doctrine of devils is speaking specifically of teaching it as religiously or morally required to abstain from these. Okay, this isn't I'm not someone that wants to take that diet for themselves. This message I'm teaching today likewise isn't dealing with the health benefits of any particular diet. You know, you'll have some vegetarians and some strict carnivores that say they don't eat vegetables. Uh, um, that they'll both be fighting over which is the best diet, and sometimes they both can, you can look at them both, and they seem like they're both in good shape physically and in their health, and it, 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 like they're both following different diets, um, and neither side realizing that it should, it's not the wall against vegetables, fruit, or the wall against meat that's given them a results, but maybe it's simply the discipline of having a diet in the first place, that they're disciplining themselves to certain things, um, but a large part of it is they're both not having a high diet in highly processed packaged foods. Um, and so that could be a major part of the difference in, 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 in that. But I'm not going to be focusing on the health benefits around it all. Um, you know, I tried doing some research um, to see if any particular countries had a higher lifespan um, than others, um, possibly being due to the diet. Um, I couldn't find any super close correlation as countries um, with a higher vegetarian diet did not pose a higher life expectancy. I thought maybe it would. Um, it was actually lower than average, but nothing significant. It was like six months um, less um, than some countries that didn't usually have that kind of diet. And I tried to get those that had the highest life expectancy, and there wasn't usually anything super uh, um, unique about the diets of those countries. Uh, um, they ate meat, they ate vegetables. Um, again, though, they likely ate less packaged foods, um, highly processed foods. Um, so there may be a clue there as far as health, but it was primary other factors that led to their higher life expectancy, um, crime being lower, um, um, eating less throughout the day or eating smaller meals. So there's different things that could be a little bit diet, but none of it was because they were like all meat or all vegetarian. Um, nothing to do with that at all. Um, religions with a strong vegetarianism expectations would include religions that originated in India, um, such as Hinduism, um, which are really strongly pushed to be vegetarian. Uh, only about 44% are, but that's still a high number. Um, what we found is that usually the vegetarians would be more in the central, the inner parts of India, and those on the coast, they relied on fish for part of their economy, and so they would generally eat meat on the coast. 
Um, Jainism, no, part of India, uh, a religion that's popular in India, not about 92%, they really are pushing for it to be 100%, but just like anyway, you see a Christian that maybe doesn't follow something God commands, you'll find those that uh, adhere to Jainism that don't follow it, but they really call for a vegetarian diet that is required um, to have a non-violence um, in their eating, and so they're only supposed to eat the other parts of a plant, but 92% of them are vegetarianism. And then also high uh, populations of Buddhism and Sikhism, with um, close to 85% of India's billion plus population practicing these religions, India remains the country with the highest number of vegetarians in the world. Ralph Fitch, a merchant of London, after visiting India, wrote a letter home in 1580 stating they have a very strange order among them. They worship the cow and esteem much of the cow's dung to paint the walls of their houses. They eat no flesh, but live by roots and rice and milk. Now later with Jainism, they won't even eat the roots. Um, Jainism, um, they won't eat the roots of any plants. Anything that needs uprooting, such as potatoes, garlic, onions, they won't eat those because they're doing violence to the plant. And they require it to do no violence or inflict the least amount of violence as possible. And so every act by which a person directly or indirectly supports killing or injury given to plants induces a harmful karma to them and can cause a unpleasant full reincarnation. I started looking up this good as far as the dung on the walls, and they still do it today. Now they process it more, and um, but they'll use cow dung and say that it's without the chemicals and stuff, and who knows, maybe, maybe that is a healthy thing, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if that someday becomes popular in America, because it seems like anything from the Eastern cultures um, it gets introduced into America as being something that becomes popular um, and over time. And well, we see there's this vegetarianism focus. Over the last two decades, India has seen tremendous economic growth. Um, which is one thing that's kind of surprising to me because they are such to be a peaceful people as far as non-violence, some of them even not to retaliate, and yet they have amongst the largest military in the world. I don't know if that's predominantly the secularist, or if maybe they have an exception for if they're attacked for self-defense, um, is they're not a country that goes in and just invades um, other countries today, um, but they are in a very hostile location as far as their surroundings, so that's probably uh, um, why. If, if they took it so much to their military as far as the nonviolence, then they probably would not exist. But um, they've had high economic growth, and yet despite having one of the ten largest economies in the world, hunger in India is still rampant. And one aspect of that is because they won't eat meat. That um, if there's cattle, they have lots of cattle, they would rather have that cattle live its life out than to feed their own child, because it's considered sacred, it's considered holy, and they're to do no harm to it. 
It would go to a point if there is a venomous snake about to attack their child, oftentimes they leave it be. That the gods just meant for that to happen and they should do no violence to the serpent. No wonder that God would call this type of stuff to command to abstain from meat a doctrine of devils. When you're putting the creature, Romans 1 talks about that, that they worship the creature more than the creator. That they deny, they reject the creator. But the creation, they glorify this Mother Earth, as we see today. And in the United States, well, it's not always religious based. They do definitely operate as a religion. You have animal rights activists groups that teach that it is morally wrong to eat meat, um, but they never go after the other animals that eat meat. I don't know why that is. I don't know what their justification is for allowing that, but they really want to get in your face and get, eat, get mad about it if they see other people eating meat. You know, what does the Bible say? Go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9. Genesis 9 and verse 3. This is says, Noah gets off the ark. God tells him, bless him to be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. And, and it says, it's verse 3, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, if it is the green herb, have I given you all things. But flesh of the life there, flesh is the blood there, shall you not eat that if it's like raw um, meat not to eat that. And surely your blood of your lives will I require the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso shed a man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for the image of God may be man. And so God does put in the death penalty if man sheds another man, that they should receive the death penalty. And, and then also even if an animal, if an animal kills um, someone, they're to be put to death. And the owners even to be held responsible. Now, if, if an owner, uh, if say someone's dog attacks somebody, then you know the, the Bible back then says that you know what, there needs to be a punishment. That now if it was unexpected, it never happened before, okay, the animal needs to be dealt with, um, as long as the owner dealt with the problem and had the animal put to death. Um, but if he didn't, and then their animal, whether it be an ox or whatever it be, and it goes and attacks and kills someone else, then it would mean their own life. And so it took it very seriously. Even today, um, in the national parks, if there's a wild animal that kills a hiker, even if the hiker was not being wise and wasn't following the rules, they're obligated to go and kill that wild animal so it does not become a habit within that same animal. And so here, what God tells them, just as I gave you the herbs, just as I gave you the plants to eat, I also give you every moving thing. There's no restrictions put here as of yet on what they can eat or not. It says everything they can freely eat. 
Some animal rights groups, Peter, uh, for example, have claimed that Jesus was a vegetarian. But you know, the Bible teaches otherwise. You know, you see in Luke 22, 7, um, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. Part of Passover was the lamb. They would sacrifice the lamb and they would eat the lamb. And so here we see Jesus saying, go prepare us for it that we may eat. We see he ate fish in Luke 24, verse 41. And while they yet believed not for joy and wonder, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. What's interesting here, this is even after he's resurrected. He's already in his glorified body, eating flesh. And so maybe that's time to tell you. You know, the Bible, Jesus does talk about how um, he'll eat the fruit of the, drink of the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread. Um, and heaven is a memorial um, in, in his kingdom. But we see a meat. We see in Matthew 14, he served fish to the multitude. Remember the loaves of bread and the fish, and they multiplied. We see he even cooked fish for his disciples in John 21, verse 9. Assumed that then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Okay? So we see Jesus was not a vegetarian, like many animal rights groups try to claim, to try to target the Christians to fall um, into this. Now, what about the dietary laws of Moses? We'll get there, but again, the dietary um, law before Moses was what? Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. No restrictions. No restrictions on pork here. Everything was freely able to be eaten. I used to think, you know, maybe the, later the dietary laws were because maybe they didn't know how to cook things to proper temperature, uh, and there were more parasites. But you know what? Here we see in the end, they were allowed to eat pork. They were allowed to eat anything at this time. And so every moving thing. The dietary law under Moses. And it made restrictions upon the nation of Israel for the purpose of being distinct from other nations. Um, and we'll get back to that. But we have even today, Seventh-day Adventists on Judaism. Um, they propose that it's required um, to follow um, the Mosaic law, the dietary restrictions that eating certain meats are sinful. But we see Jesus with his coming, that he already gives a clue that he's abolishing um, the dietary laws um, on Mark 7, verse 15. He says, there is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, and he said unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without enter into a man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and go about into the drop, purging all meats. And at this phrase, purging all meats, also the CIA did that he is declaring it to all meats to be clean. 
And he said that which come out of the man, that defiled the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. That's internal. Okay? So I believe Jesus followed the Mosaic law. He fulfilled the law. So Jesus would not have ate pork like that. But we see Jesus here is saying that it's not what goes in the man that defiles him. It's what's coming out of the heart. But with the death of Jesus and his resurrection, that did remove the old covenant um, as he fulfilled it. Colossians 2.14. Go ahead and turn there. Colossians 2.14. Uh, I'm just going to um, go ahead and start reading. Though. I'll give you the references, but just for time's sake, just want to keep moving along. But it says, Plotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailed it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And so when Jesus was crucified, um, that the Mosaic law, the, the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, now not so much the moral laws, but still in the, as far as for salvation, it would include the moral laws, that there's no moral law we could keep to get salvation. There's no dietary law we could keep to get salvation. He blots all of that out against us. Um, and it says now, it says, let no man therefore judge you in me, or in drink, or in respect of the holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. These were just a shadow of things to come. Uh, the dietary regulations were temporary and timid to teach Israel the importance of discernment and to isolate the nation from the pagan societies around it. To reimpose them now would be to manufacture a works righteousness system that denies the work of Christ. Um, the work of the gospel abolished the dietary laws. In Acts chapter 10, go ahead and turn there. Acts 10, in verse 9. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the house of the prey about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So God here is bringing down in a vision, food, down, uh, meat, uh, cattle, animals, all kinds of animals, creeping things, and tells Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou 
come. What God hath cleansed, that call not thou come. Now remember before, before Moses, before God brought the Mosaic law, they were free to eat anything. Then under the Mosaic law, um, we'll get there in Deuteronomy 14, but um, they were not to eat certain types of meat then. But now it's saying what God has cleansed, cleansed that called out not common. This was done thrice, means three times. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house, stood before the gate. So Peter's like, okay, what does this mean? Is there was a spiritual meaning to this? Okay, and, and we'll, we'll get that now. It's, a, it's occasionally, um, okay, it's used as an illustration it's, it's in verse 28. Read in verse 28. And he said unto them, We know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man to, that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And this was breaking the, the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. That, that the Gentiles should not be called unclean. No longer to be called dogs. Now before we see that Jesus even did it, goes, aren't they called dogs? You know, he, he gives them a reference when he tries to, to show them that he is bringing them into the fold. And so it's used as an illustration to not call the Gentiles unclean, but that they are able to be saved in Christ as well. It's been occasionally maintained <clears throat> that God sent this vision is only a kind of symbolic representation of the fact that God was calling Gentiles as well as Jews to be Christians, cleansing them by the blood of Christ. And it's true, of course, that that's the, what the illustration is illustrating, but it's because Gentiles, which would include uh, uh, Gentile foods, including pork, have been declared clean by God himself. The illustration would not work if the illustration was not true. God did not say, kill and eat, talking about the Gentiles, saying, go kill and eat the Gentiles. He was using literal food, okay, animals, to go kill and eat, to, yes, symbolize that, but it does not undo the illustration itself. Okay, he was talking about creatures like swine. Yes, it's also illustrated not considered the people group unclean, and that's the main teaching here. But you know, you wouldn't take water, for example, and then say to someone, hey, you know, I'm gonna add harmful bacteria to this water, and here, drink it, it's clean. You, you wouldn't do that. Okay, but now I'm saying, hey, here's a water filter, okay? filter this harmful bacterial water into the filter and it comes out clean and you can drink it. Okay, so that, that, that illustration would work. Okay, and now what God had once told the Jewish people this meat is unclean, God is now saying it is clean. Likewise, these people groups who you have seen is unclean for centuries, they're drafted into the body of Christ and don't call it unclean. And now if 
this was the only passage of Scripture. is still enough there to tell us that, but that's where we look at, compare Scripture with Scripture, to see that God did mean what He said, that He did give and cleanse the animals that is no longer considered unclean religiously to eat it. The dietary restrictions being lifted are a picture of God allowing the unclean Gentiles into a relationship with God. And the point of the dietary restrictions, as well as many of the other Jewish restrictions, were to create a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles that were pagan in their religion. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 14. And this distinction, though, was not based on just them as a people group, just that they were Greeks or um, that they were from these nations. It was the religious um, aspects that they espoused. You know, some people would um, try to teach that interracial marriage is wrong because there's passages where um, God told them not to intermarry with the daughters of Moab. And um, the purpose was not to race. It was not them as a people, it was what they practiced. That they would sacrifice their children, that um, the evil, the wickedness, that you're not to yoke up with an unbeliever. We see God very much so um, allotted. What, 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 who did Boaz marry? Okay? A Moabite. So the, what, the restriction wasn't that they're from Moab, or that that's um, the race, the kindred that they're from, but it was religiously, they would not be compatible. They were not to be unequally yoked. Had nothing to do with the race itself, but had to do with what predominantly those people groups would be involved in. Um, Deuteronomy 14, verse 1 says, Ye are the children of the Lord your God, ye shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are upon the earth. Okay, so God is saying, I am selecting thee, I have chosen thee to be a peculiar people, a peculiar nation amongst the rest of the world. Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. These are the beasts which ye shall eat, the ox, the sheep, and the goat, the hart, and the roebuck, and the fallow deer, and the wild goat, and the piker, and the wild ox, and the camos, and every beast of part of the hoof, and cleave of the cleft into two claws, and chew of the cud, cut among the beasts that ye shall eat. Nevertheless, these ye shall not eat of them that chew the cud, or of them that divide the cloven hoof, is the camp camel. And the hare and the hunt pony, for they chew the cud, but divide not the hook. Therefore they are unclean unto you. And the swine, because it divided the hoof, yet cheweth not the cud, it is unclean unto you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. Okay? So now God is bringing in what we often call the Mosaic law, God's law for the Israelite people. Before again, God told them to eat anything. But now... He is saying, do not eat these particular things. I want to make you a peculiar people. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be different than these different nations. And that's why it was a big issue um, when a man was sick. And he cooked, I forget his name, but um, um, made a sacrifice of a pig instead of a lamb in the temple of God. 
And it was considered blasphemy that um, they, instead of the unspotted lamb, they used something that was considered unclean. Okay? So God was making these people, a peculiar people above all nations. But the distinction was done away in Christ as he tore down the partition between God and man. Matthew 27, 51, when the bell in the temple um, was torn down as he was crucified, and he tore down the partition between Jews and Gentiles, making both one in Christ, Ephesians 2, 13 and 15, and any attempt to hold on to the wheat and beggarly elements of the old covenant is the rejection of the new covenant that speak of a better way. And it's a denial of Christ's unifying work. Galatians 4 9. Um, Paul tells the church just in Galatia, but now after that you have known God, or rather known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be embodied? He's like, you've been saved, you've been redeemed. Why are you trying to now go back to these restrictions, to these laws, as though this is what you need to stay safe? Says, so you know, you receive salvation by faith. You know, you're kept saved by grace of God through faith, not by the works of the law or these beggarly elements. In Christ, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament have come to an end. No more sacrifices, no more Levitical priesthood, no more cleanliness laws. And why would you keep the ceremonial shadows of Christ when the reality has already come? Amen. Reality is come, Christ is here, he's fulfilled it. Now we do see in the Old Testament there are prophecies that when Christ comes to rule and reign, some of these stuff will be put back in place as a memorial. But as in that timing, then go ahead and turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. In verse 1, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations, not to like five, you have all these arguments, but you know what, it's for one believer, that he may eat all things. Another who is weak, eat of herbs. Let not him that eat of despise him that eat of not, and let not him that which eat of not judge him that eat of, for God hath received him. And, you know, Paul elsewhere in Corinthians, I didn't write this one down, um, but the, there, there's passages in the Bible where it says, do not eat anything offered to idols. And then another passage where it talks about, hey, you know, if you eat something offered to an idol, it's not really going to matter because it's just, it's just me. And then you compare them and kind of say, okay, what is the distinction? Okay, and what we see between what Jesus says in Revelation, what Paul is writing, that if someone says, and he goes, Andrew, here's some food offered to the Hindu God. And you're saying, okay, no, I cannot eat that. You're, you're, it's for conscience sake. With conscience, you're eating something that is being offered to another God. But like what Paul deals with, he says, but if you're in the market, okay, you're in the market and you're buying some meat. He says, you know what? It might have been offered to an eye. You might know it has, you may not know of it has. And it says, if someone give you meat, take it freely. That, that it, it is, it's not, it's just meat. If it's offered to a wooden statue or a gold um, or stone, 
It doesn't change the substance of the meat. It was the religious practice that was being forbidden, that you're not to be eating the meat offered to idols. But say it was offered and then it was in the market space, it says it's, it's just meat. It's not going to harm you in that, in that sense. Now, read on. Who uh, art thou that judges another man's servant to his own master? He standeth or fall. Yea, he shall be holding up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. So it's showing here that there's liberty in Christ, okay, that we're not to judge one another, okay? There's pe some people that, you know what, they don't celebrate Christmas out of their convictions that there's some groups of paganism, Christmas, Christ, Mass, and they don't want anything to do with the paganism of the Catholic Church. And then there's other Christians that celebrate Christmas, not as it is in relates to, um, to the, um, the Catholics believing that they're actually eating Jesus when they take the wafer. They're just using it as a time of joy and using it to invite people to church, invite them to their homes to celebrate the birth of Christ. Both Christians are convicted according to their own conscience. Some celebrate the day, some don't celebrate the day, but they're both doing it out of a motive as unto the Lord. And he says we shouldn't judge one another based on those things. One celebrates the day as unto the Lord, some celebrate not the day as unto the Lord. Okay, that there is Christian liberty, there is liberty in Christ, and same with what we eat. There's some that will eat this. There's some that won't eat that. Sometimes it's part of their conviction. Sometimes they may even feel that religiously they feel compelled. That, that may be them. We're not to judge or condemn one another. And it goes, for none of us live unto himself and no man die unto himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why judge that dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou send it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know, you can see it, look at right here, underlined, highlighted, I know and am persuaded by you, the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteem of anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Okay, to a vegetarian, from their conscience, they feel like the meat's unclean. Okay, to them, it would be unclean. But Paul says, I'm, con con I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus Christ, persuaded nothing in of itself is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably? Destroy not him which thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. 
For he that in these things serve Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore fall after the things which make for peace, and things whereof one may edify one another. For me destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with the fence. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, or anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned, and he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Okay, so this would all go back to the illustration there. Say you bought meat from the marketplace. And you had another young believer coming. There's something about this century. We're probably you're probably not going to have the religion as far as as far as meats happen today, unless you're in some other parts of the world. But they bought me from the marketplace, and you had another believer over, and their conscience was affected that hey, I know that meat was offered to idols. That was from that marketplace. Then it would be better as a Christian that they would, okay, I am not going to eat this meat in their company. Because it could be a stumbling block to them. Now he says, your liberty, your conscience shouldn't be judged. We shouldn't judge one another. But we should look charitably after one another. Not to intentionally try to be a stumbling block um, to somebody. Nothing's unclean of itself, but don't be a stumbling block or condemn someone that feels uncomfortable with eating meat. Now let's look back in our passage that we read. We read the part in Acts um, in 10 where Paul not dealt with his cleansed. But we see again in 1 Timothy 4, 3, forbid, the doctrines of devils are what? Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which seven-day Adventists do to this day. Um, which God have created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. If it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That God's own word sanctifies it. That we're to receive it with thanksgiving and with prayer. And so here the Bible shows, we show several scriptures where it does not command to abstain from meat, but says it's a doctrine of devils to command to abstain from it. The fundamental error of doctrines of devils is teaching that rejects God's divine revelation, or twists it to mean contrary to what he said. All false teaching is a denial of God's word, or twisting what God did say. We see that Paul confronts false teachers for their training of Scripture in 1 Timothy 1, 3-11, chapter 6, 3-5, many different Scriptures. Um, and contrary to the false teaching, claiming Ephesus, God created both marriage and food and pronounced them to be good. The marriage bed is undefined. No, it says, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge, but the marriage bed undefiled. That is a gift from God. The meats that are available is a gift from God. Now, in the future, when you have a new earth, there will be no more death. So, maybe need all the meat you can while you're in this life. Okay? No, I'm just joking. Up. But God created marriage and food to be gratefully received by those who believe and know 
to truth. How then can it be right to deny them to others? God made marriage and food for the same reason he made everything else, to give man joy and to bring himself glory. That is to be received. So beware of false teaching. You send us subtle things. They started to believe that they were more spiritual because they did not get married, because they did not eat meat. Okay, again, this isn't saying that someone is a weak in the faith because they have this kind of diet for health reasons, or that's just what they choose to have. But it's when we religiously believe it, then the Bible says it becomes the doctrine of devils when we're commanding others to abide by the same diet. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. And again, remember next week, um, we have our potluck um, meal and uh, um, barbecue. It will be at Paul and Crystal's house. They're just about three minutes down the road. Heavenly Father, we just pray, Lord, um, I use this message, Lord. Um, I don't entirely know how, but in it, you've said that these are the things to teach, to preach, to be a good minister um, of God, and to um, do it that word of all these things. Sometimes we may think where's the practical teaching, but um, it's there's your word, and it's to beware of those that maybe are trying to religiously or moralistically try to compel um, us into a particular diet where really it's not means to destroy the body, but that it is what comes out of the man that defiles the man. And Lord, may um, people realize their need for Jesus Christ is able to make us clean. That we are always but an unclean thing before our salvation. That even our works, our righteousness are as filthy rats. But your blood is able to make us clean and wash us away from all of our sin. And that we can rejoice in that. If there's anyone in here that doesn't know you as your Savior, they come and seek um, you for your word. And um, from us, if you deliver the word to them, that they may be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Fellowship, be friendly. Hot? No, because it's it's two hours long. Titus must have done with the other one for mine. But it's part one and part two, so we could do part one. No. Oh. Wait.